0: Welcome to From Duck Till Dark Outside the Marvel Studios. An audio celebration of the films based on Marvel Comics characters released before and during the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Enough said. Face front, true believers. This is George Soroy, and welcome to the latest episode of the National Podcast Post-Month Challenge. Once again, I have to say that this show would not be possible without Jennifer Navaretti coming up with the National Podcast Post-Month Challenge. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for doing this. And for those of you who have not yet heard of this challenge, it's very simple. At the end of November after day 30 you have won this challenge if you have recorded edited and posted 30 episodes of a podcast and so it is an amazing challenge this is my 3rd year doing it and the second year doing from duck till dark this was a this is a passion project that started a couple of years ago and i am so so looking forward to talking to you about tonight's movie because This was one of those movies that I was looking forward to seeing ever since I saw that first teaser of Charles Xavier and Eric Lenshire. Once again, from the end of the first X-Men movie, sitting in Eric's plastic prison and having that chess match, I'm talking about the 2003 sequel, X2, a little bit of a background for what was going on with this one. So... Back in the summer of 2000, when the first X-Men movie came out, the top brass at 20th Century Fox was not all that confident in this movie. Granted, this was a summer tentpole movie, but at the same time, it was only given a budget of about $75 million, which even in 2000 uh, dollars, that's not a huge budget there. And so they were basically just not sure what was going to happen with this one, especially considering the fact that comic book movies had had their ebbs and flows, especially with Marvel. It took their fifth movie to actually like make a legitimate profit off of one of their properties. And that was Blade. So X-Men was definitely much more mainstream, but they never really had the sort of universal appeal as say Spider-Man. So... This was going to be a very interesting situation. Thankfully, there was a great team behind the scenes, a great team of actors in front of one hell of a good script. And at the end of it all, it wound up being a success, both financially and critically. And so after the summer of 2000, that was when Fox decided they were going to greenlight a sequel. And director Brian Singer went right to work looking at all the different X-Men comics that he could. He... F- and producer Tom DeSanto pictured this as the Empire Strikes Back of the series, which meant that characters were going to be split and kind of doing their own thing. And this was also going to be a darker story and a feeling of a constant chase with, with their adversaries hot on their trail. And they also decided that this was going to be, this was going to be a human story which meant the humans were going to be the adversaries. And what was that going to be like? And thankfully, they found their template in a graphic novel called God Loves, Man Kills. Very dark, very, very dark and very controversial, especially considering the fact that the adversary in that is a preacher named William Stryker. And his this preacher actually killed his wife and newborn son when it was revealed that his newborn son carried the mutant gene. And so he (laughs) set out on a crusade to basically eradicate all mutant kind from the planet. And he did that by kidnapping Charles Xavier and keeping him isolated from everyone else and using him, using his abilities to basically... Reach out to all of mutants around the world and kill them all via cerebral hemorrhage. So it's a really it's a really dark story, but at the same time, thankfully, Singer and company they knew exactly how they could use this as the springboard for this sequel, and so he also brought in writers Michael Doherty and Dan Harris to work on the screenplay. He worked on the on the story with David Hayter, the screenwriter of the original, and also brought in uh, writer Zach Penn, who has been basically like working on various X-Men projects. And he would be one of the writers of X-Men The Last Stand, which would come a few years later. So there was a whole lot that was going on with this. And they made some changes. They made William Stryker a military scientist instead of a preacher. God knows it would have been it would it's it's a it's a it's a very meaty controversial kind of storyline anyway. So to make the villain a preacher, they thankfully they knew that they had to pull back from that. And thankfully, what they also did with that was stri- they made Stryker's division the team responsible for the creation of Magneto's plastic prison, and they also set up they also set up Stryker as one of the figureheads of the project that would turn Logan into what he is, injecting that animantium into his, into his skeleton and making him virtually indestructible. So it was a great way to incorporate both William Stryker into both storylines. It's really incredible. Like when you look back at it, it's a re- it's a one hell of a storyline here. Then you also have John Ottman who could not be a part of the first X-Men because he was busy making his directorial debut with Urban Legends Final Cut. But now he was back in. He was back in the fold. He was able to make it work schedule wise. So he not only brought his skills as a music composer, but also as an editor. And with a story this big, an editor was definitely needed and thankfully he knew exactly what he was doing with this one because he kept that pace really, really brisk to the point where this this the finished film I believe is just over two hours long and it flies. It absolutely flies. I have nothing but love for this for this movie. almost 20 years later it's still I still believe it holds up. I still remember. Opening night at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York City, and there were four different spots where there was applause from the sold-out crowd. The first one, no surprise to anyone, is the attack on the White House by Nightcrawler at the very beginning. Holy crap, that is just an amazing sequence that just, I mean, there there is an energy to that sequence and the... The action and Alan Cumming, God bless him, as Nightcrawler, just, I mean, everything in that scene was just amazing. And it let right away that this is not going to be, this is not going to be what you would expect from an X-Men movie, even though this is only the second one. It was basically just saying that, okay, everything you saw in that first X-Men movie, that's a prologue. Now we get to tell you the real story. And boy, did they ever so there was that there was also the attack on the mansion on the xavier school by Stryker's men and which allowed wolverine the green light to basically channel that berserker rage that we had heard about and seen tiny little glimpses of in that first film but this time the gloves are off the claws are out and and he just lets them fly and for A PG-13 movie, it's pretty damn violent. He does quite a bit of damage. Um, It's still going to be almost 15 years before we see just how much damage he can really do. But that's for quite a while down the road. But for what we saw here, this was pretty amazing. Then you have the scene with Magneto's release from the plastic prison, which was just so cool. It was absolutely awesome. And the way that it was, the way that it was coordinated, I thought was pretty ingenious as well. And so, the fourth one, the fourth spot from from what I remember, was basically like the closing credits, which was pretty spectacular. It was just a spectacular moment, anyway. Just the, the way that everything came together, and I don't think that Tom DeSanto had in mind that he not only was going to make this, the Empire Strikes Back of this series, but he was also making his Wrath of Khan because you have that, that classic moment of Jean Grey sacrificing herself to allow everyone to escape. And that in itself, the way that, the way that Jean's powers were manifesting throughout this movie, I thought was, was pretty incredible. I love the slow burn and the way that she was starting to feel sense different, different thoughts in everyone at the beginning. And then more and more, her, her powers are getting a little bit more and more erratic, a little bit more enhanced, basically like a damn cracking. That's basically what it is. And it might be a little too heavy handed with the symbolism, but hey, it works. And to see the the. Vision of a phoenix underneath the water was so thrilling because you just know that, like, it was just going to be such an amazing experience of what was going to happen next. Now, like I said when I was talking about the first X-Men movie, this was another big reason why I was really looking forward to this was that I got to take my dad to see it. And I wound up seeing this one, I believe it was either three times in one week or three times in two weeks. But I did see it three times in the theater. Saw it with uh, my group of friends at the Ziegfeld for opening night, I saw it with some other friends over in, I think it was over at Lincoln Square on 68th and Broadway. And and my father and I saw it over in Jersey. And I still remember what he said afterwards. And he just said, I really liked the first one, but this one just kicked its ass. And I was so ecstatic because that pretty much solidified that X-Men was going to be our franchise. And I love that we have that, that we can, that we can run with that i've gotten him complete sets like for the for the uh, the x-men movie series on blu-ray and when new ones were coming out like x-men apocalypse like logan like dark phoenix i made a point to get him those so that way he was fully caught up with his collection and we'll be getting to those movies like i said later on but, but this one wound up being um, a real big success and a high watermark at the time for for comic book movie fans. I know this because when we were coming out of the theater, we ran into one of our friends who was actually um, a guest on Excelsior, Excelsior Journeys, Bill Demerit. Like, we were hugging in the parking lot. Like, we were so, so fired up over how good this movie was and how seriously they were taking these characters we had dealt with Batman and Forever and Batman and Robin and this was so far beyond that i just absolutely loved it and i also loved the little little nods of what they are actually doing with charles xavier when it comes to him walking and not walking because One of the things that uh, that is touched upon in the first X-Men film is we see Charles go into the mind of Senator Kelly. And once he's in Senator Kelly's mind and he sees that moment where Senator Kelly is being getting that that the machine, that Magneto designed with the mutation basically just like washing over him. We know that uh, we know that this is definitely inside Senator Kelly's mind because we see Charles Xavier stand up and he can't do that in real life. And then you have later on in, uh, in X2, we get to see Charles looking down at his legs, standing up. And it's that moment when he realizes what he's doing and where he is, it's when he turns and looks right at the the man that's been basically torturing mentally, which is William Stryker's son, Jason. And by putting these visions inside his head. And so it's that moment when he realizes that his reality is shifting. And it's such a tremendous way to do that. I mean, there's... I could go on and on and on about so many different things about this movie. I absolutely loved it. Not only was the acting from all the returning actors fantastic, but you also had Brian Cox as William Stryker, who just absolutely ruled in this role. Just just someone you absolutely despise. <laughs> and he brought this amazing energy to the role. And the scenes that he had with Patrick Stewart were just flawless. I mean, everything, the the theme that John Ottman was able to bring that really kind of established it as a de facto X-Men theme. Granted, we're not going to establish, we're not going to realize that that is the de facto theme for a few other movies down the road. But I mean, just, like I said, so much great stuff from this. And I I was thrilled to see that, that it got so much acclaim. I was thrilled to see that, that audiences were, were really taking to it and enjoying it. And this, and it was the performance of this that basically greenlit the third film. However, there would be quite a few little bumps in the road for that one. But we'll get to that in several episodes later. But for now, I just have to say thank you to everyone involved with X2 for delivering something so magnificent. So if you would like to share your thoughts about the movie, please go to facebook.com slash from duck till dark. And even if you don't see the poster, just go ahead and put in a, a post on there like I'll be happy to see it i'll be happy to read whatever your thoughts are on the air so until next time this is george Soroy saying to all of you ever upward and excelsior i'll see you tomorrow